It's Tuesday, September 14th, and you've got Oz in your ears. Well, hi there. This is David Osmond, again on the road for Radio Free Oz, and we are here on the steps of the Capitol Building for the unveiling of designer Yves Saint-Stoul's Midterm Modern fashion line. Uh, hi, Eve. Welcome to Washington, D.C. Well, merci, David, and hello to you, too. Yes. You know, this is a very exciting time. Upheaval is in the air. Uh-huh. The Republicans are beginning to test blood. And as you know, many of them live entirely on blood. So for them, this is a very heady time. Oh, yes. Well, it's a beheading time, too, <laughs> I think, is uh, probably what they have in mind. Uh, so are you designing for these uh, right-wingers, these hordes of right-wingers that are kind of descending on this town? No, David. Uh, no? No. These boobs. They are cut from another cloth, and it is a shod I cannot float. Oh-ho. But I have put together a line of accessories that will uh-huh. allow us to suffer through the next two years. And by that you must mean uh, some of this unusual jewelry. Ah, yes, there. the Bible belt. Uh, <laughs> on both sides of the buckle you see are the lithium LEDs with continual readouts of Old and New Testament passages. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Let me try to follow this. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings, uh, uh, thunders, and voices. Uh-huh, that's uh, from... Uh, Revelations? Is I that think it is. Right. Oh, look inside. Uh-huh. Now look there into the mirrored buckles surrounded by the clusters of emeralds and sardine uh, stones. Uh, what yes. do you see? Uh, oh, my gosh. For just a second there, I thought I, I saw myself as Jesus. Well, everyone does, David. It's a holographic trick. But for the fundamentalists, a great self-esteem builder. Oh, I'm sure I'm sure it is. Well, what about the, the watch? Well, much more than a watch. It uh-huh. is a GOP gaydar early warning system. It glows pink and plays the village people Ooh. if any of the Republicans in the room are still in the closet. Oh, I had Ken Melman tagged a month before he came out. Oh, that's a very clever item. Okay, now, now this, what is this? A... Flimsy. It's a, a, a body suit. What, it's what's an ultra thin, second skin dyed the very hue of John Baymer's suntan. Oh. Slip it on and fit right in with the other Georgetown barflies toasting their skyrocketing, sordid careers. You, huh? can, you can have a, an Oliver Tan and, 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 a, and, a, and a bespoke suit sort yeah. of at the same time. Now, David, here, huh? I know you're going okay. to that tea party over at C Street Frat House. Oh, yes. You'll need some protection. Uh, I, I Try on so. this four George Washington tricolor radio hat with antenna wheel. All right, let me, it oh. blocks all signals from Fox, Rush Limbaugh, and Glenn Beck, and surreptitiously lets you listen to Rachel Maddow while these boobs are trying to fill your head with their useless natter. Let me see now. Uh, so well, usually I get silence from yeah. these things, but oh, there she is. Yeah, she's yeah, funny, huh? She she she's nice yeah. boobs. Well, no, well, well, other, no, I, I must go. A client yes. of mine is attending an affair where Sarah Palin will be appearing, That's and too bad. she wants to keep her distance, yeah. so. No problem. She'll be wearing my new scent, KTC. KTC. It mimics Katie Couric's pheromones. It totally terrorizes Mama Grizzlies and leaves them speechless. (laughs) That must be what worked on Jan Brewer. Au revoir! (laughs) So long. Yes, you're up on the web, or you've had something come down from the web and it's in your ears. You've got Oz in your ears. It's RadioFreeOz.com. I'm your host, Peter Bergen. My co-host, David Osmond, is sitting right across me. And David, you know, we are part of the web journalism. We are a part of this whole change about the way people get their news and their information. Well, you know, it's had its impact. The publisher of the New York Times acknowledged Mm -hmm. last week that the newspaper will go out of print soon. We will stop printing the New York Times sometime in the future. A date to be announced, Arthur Salzberger told an audience at a London media summit. Salzberger's statement came in response to a prediction that the newspaper would be out of print by 2015, around the corner. This sounds obvious, but it's a big deal, business editor, founder um, Henry Blodgett wrote, the economics of the online news business will not support the infrastructure or newsroom that the printed paper supports unless the New York Times company can come up with a miracle new digital revenue stream, and everybody's been trying to find it, therefore it will eventually have to be restructured and downsized or sold to a deep-pocketed Sidney Harmon type who can run it out of loss, strictly out of love. Early next year, the newspaper will introduce a metered model paywall. I like that new word, paywall. Paywall. To to its Mm. website, which Salzberger said has the benefit, let's see what benefits he's got here, of uh, allowing our millions of readers who come to us through search engines to find out still find out our content. So it's the gray lady is mm. going, David. The la- the greatest American newspaper, the greatest of all American newspapers. Well, certainly, and it's 
it is not so long ago that they were setting type by hand, and then it wasn't so long ago that they had liner types that were setting it. And when I worked for Newsweek back in the late uh, 1950s, uh, there was still there was still hot type that went into the news that went into the magazine. So well, I grew up in a, in a newspaper family. My dad would take me yep. down into the press room of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. You could smell the lead. Mm-hmm. Guys were wearing little white hats they'd made out of pages of newspaper, right? And it was it was Ben Hecht Redux. And I never in my, would I. Could I have ever imagined that, you know, as I became, you know, decades older, that this institution would disappear? Because I wouldn't know why, right? Somebody would say, well, it'll all be online. Hmm, I don't know what he means by that. No, well, it's all very well and good to have things online and lots of information and to be able to Google your life away. But uh, here it is. Here's the New York Times. I can, I can um, recycle this. Yeah, you okay. can wrap fish in it. I, I could put it on the bottom of the birdcage. Yes, All you. of those things that you can do with the newspaper. The Los Angeles bird liner and the New York <laughs> fish wrap, the, the new newspapers. The, the two great uh, coastal papers, yeah. right? And, and you know that one of, the, one of the major forces behind making marijuana illegal back in the 20s was the newspaper business, which was investing in forests of pulpwood and feared hemp. As a competitor, they were one of the forces. So you're sitting there also holding a tree in your hand in order to read. Now, I have no attitude about that. You can grow trees as a crop as easily as anything else, but um, you don't need them trees, you know, to do it. No, but what do you have to grow? You have to, what are you growing to make, uh, you know, to make the whole thing work on a a Mac laptop? Okay, yeah, you're right. There's there's a large commitment of resources to the laptop. It's huge. And you have to create the electricity. Electricity, which right now is made by dirty, dirty coal and lots of oil. It's true. There, there. It's not without a footprint. I'm not saying, but the fact is, is that whole idea of like lying in bed on a Sunday morning with the New York Times, yeah, coming maybe apart some locks, maybe sections. some locks and bagel, maybe a mm. cigarette in the old days and some strong dark <laughs> coffee. It's a good buy. It's just you know, you're going to be sitting there with your iPad or something like it on your lap. You will, or you'll probably be finding old, old copies of the New York Times that could be sent to you, you know, illegally smuggled right, on smuggled stuff called out. paper. Smuggled out on paper. Well, but it does bother me that we don't have those guys, the linotype guys with the paper hats, that we don't. Uh, who, who's now, who's working? Who, who's the working class of the new journalism? Is it you and me? It's because you and, we're publishing it and it, writing it. And it's you and me, baby. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, we got to start making some paper hats because it really is <laughs> you and I. And it was, you know, I, I read this article about the 10, uh, 10 major areas of work that are disappearing in America, shrinking and not returning once again to their robust, you know, pre-life. Mm-hmm. Newspapers is one of them. And they're talking about 160,000 more reporters and, and people going in the next year. And it's way, way down. It's suffering seriously, you know, and therefore, what what's the new journalism school going to look like in the university, right? It's not going to teach you to, you know, write for a newspaper and sit around with a City bunch of your room. friends. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah, they're... they're Coffee boy! You know, your big, happy newspapers like Politico is real, real successful, but how big a room is that? How many people? Maybe 40 people at uh, at, at computers? I mean, you know, where, where's all the president's men? Where, you know, where's Deep Throat? It's uh, What happened to all that romance? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the guy in the in the in the garage in the dark. Mark Felt, it turned out to be Mark Felt, Felt. right? He, Head of the FBI passed yeah. all that information along. And thank God for Mark. But what's he going to do now? Comment, or you know, he's he's going to like email it. He's going to post it, blog it. Well, he's changed into the guy from WikiLeaks. Of course, he's, he's going to he's going to take a WikiLeak. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me, I uh, I'll be right back. I'm going to take a WikiLeak. If you want to stay on top of what's happening with Radio Free Oz or even want to contribute to the show, we have a brand new way for you to do that. Just go to www.twitter.com slash oznetwork and click on the follow button. Then stand by for further instructions. Kind of sounds like Jack Armstrong. Stand by for further instructions. Well, you know, Peter, every once in a while I find these statistical things in the New York Times, no matter what format I'm reading or Skyping or, or whatever doing, whatevering it on. Well, just bring it on, Dave. Okay. 
not enough action at the salad bar. Uh-oh. That's the headline here. Most Americans still do not eat vegetables often enough, and fruit consumption is actually dropping a little, just like the fruit off the trees, according to a report released by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Last year, about one-third of adults ate fruit or fruit juice at least twice a day, okay? yeah. down slightly from more than 34% in 2000. Only about 26% ate vegetables three or more times a day. I don't. I Tell don't. me, that's a bit... Con- Compulsive, you know, vegetables for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah, mm. and snacks. And snacks, okay. Um, uh, uh, only about 26, the same as in 2000, no state met the goals of three-quarters of Americans eating enough fruit and uh, a half eating enough vegetables. I mean, I'm not quite sure exactly what statistical meaning we should well, take here's from one this. thing. If, in a world where people are like, have no food at all and would be more glad than you can believe to eat vegetables three times a day, we choose not to. Part of it is the fast food syndrome. It's stress, it's depression, it's bad habits, it's whatever. I mean, I can only talk about my own, my own, you know. I get a bagel in the morning and it's worth six pieces of toast and I think I'm doing well. <laughs> well, California ate the most fruit. Yes, I can understand uh, that. Tennessee was the best on the vegetable plate. Tennessee. Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Oklahoma, however, came in at the bottom for fruit. Well, it comes Ain't in no the bottom. no fruits here in Oklahoma anyway. Come Doesn't on. Oklahoma pretty much come in the bottom for everything? <laughs> except for oil wells on the state house lawn. And the lowest vegetable consumption in the USA is was the, by state? Yeah, the lowest the, vegetable consumption right. in the USA. Let me think about this for a second. North Dakota. You missed it by a south. South Dakota. South Dakota. Not bad, huh? That's I'm close. good. I'm That's good. really good. Well, it, it's very expensive to begin with. I mean, not, you know, it, they don't grow there. And uh, I think these people, I'll have, we'll have it's to call Scott like, Wilde. We have a North Dakotan. We've got a, we got, got, got a guy in Bismarck. We'll have to ask yeah, him. Yeah, tell him where Scott. he gets his fruit and vegetables. Yeah, what does he eat per day? Yeah, Are they yeah. fresh? Well, we do a, we'll do a video Skype, so he can't lie to us. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I'll tell you, here's just the other thought from the news. A uh, There is a constitutional right to get your tattoos there oh there is yeah. good ninth good. circuit court of appeals went all That's the way San to Francisco. the ninth circuit uh they struck down hermosa beach's ban on tattoo parlors hermosa beach one of the great california super Fried surfer. brains on toast <laughs> surfer beach man yeah. the city had banned the businesses arguing they were risk to public health and safety no 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 not the tattoos it's the guy who are getting the tattoos, tattoos right i mean yeah well you know they, they those people are fairly well regulated they they used to be a lot more of a problem than they are i i personally am not a big tattoo person uh i don't have any and I don't, my daughter keeps, you know, I'm going to get a tattoo, dad. I don't oh, yeah. know if I'm going to get this one or that one. And after a while, I realize she's playing me. So I said, well, I don't know. Uh, how about a snake running entirely around your body saying good luck or so, you know, whatever, whatever you need. The, the problem with, with, with tattoos is that they're like old boyfriends. They're hard to get off your body. Well, I think, I think uh, our son Preston came up with just the right tattoo. He said he and maybe his brother and, and maybe another friend were all going to get a tattoo on their arms of uh, Whidbey Island. They will regret that. Now, my favorite tattoo uh, you know, story is about Cher. They say that when she was young, she got this, this rose, little rose tattooed on the top of her right breast, and it's now a long stem. I have Michael Newman on the phone. This is the second of our interviews. He's professor of philosophy at Trent University in Ontario, Canada. And Michael, welcome to ra- back to Radio Free Oz, I should say. Uh, I want to talk about something which that you've written on extensively, and I think you have a very good take on, which is basically the the role of anti-Semitism, the and and the the you know the epithet of anti-Semitism, and how it has clouded the whole idea of how we as American nationals can deal with Israel in a reasonable way and how we can how we can deal with the rest of the world uh, I- inside this format. But uh, talk to me about this, okay? Well, I think that part of the problem in, in talking about anti-Semitism is a problem I run into in a lot of subjects. People don't seem willing to admit that times have changed. Uh, anti-Semitism was once a truly huge problem. Everybody knows this. Uh, it's not a big problem 
today. Uh-huh. Yes, uh, people say lots of nasty things about Jews. Well, people say a lot of nasty things about pretty much everyone. Uh, it's the age of the Internet, after all. And uh, in fact, you've got to ask yourself, how are you going to measure the seriousness of a, a problem or of a, you know, a form of racism? And I take a very, uh, you might say, a kind of vulgar uh, approach. Uh, my question is always, you know, how many killed, how many injured? I don't want to hear about who got yelled at in the street or who got shoved or what cemetery got defaced or where somebody put on swastikas. I want to hear of, pe- of people actually being hurt. And if you look at that, the, the number of Jews outside Israel, which is, of course, a magnet for anti-Jewish feeling because Israel claims to speak for all Jews, outside Israel, the, the number of people who are seriously hurt and injured for being Jewish is slightly less than the number of people killed in uh, car crashes uh, in, in, in my neck of the woods in Canada, that is to say, we're talking maybe two or three people a year yep. on average at most. So I want to know, why is this, why is this still a huge issue? Well, it, it's a, it is in a sense, probably from, from my point of view, one is that, you know, there are a lot of people in the amongst uh, Jewish intelligentsia and, and other walks of life who have been very sensitized to it because they grew up with it when it was a huge issue. And second of all, it's a very powerful tool to take away the whole rational argument about dealing with Israel as a nation rather than as, as you say, a spokesman of or a simulcrum of Jewish people in general. Well, uh, I know what you're saying, uh, not least because I'm one of those people who was brought up that way. Yes. I mean, I I was obsessed, of course, with with anti-Semitism and with the Nazi era. But, again, uh, times have changed. Uh, Today, there are so many Jews who are shouting up and down that criticism of Israel has nothing to do with anti-Semitism and and who are making these criticisms themselves, that this is no longer something credible. And and I'd go further than that. I'd say that a lot of the uh, right-wing pro-Israel Jews who profess such enormous uh, sensitivity to anti-Semitism are really talking about a self-induced emotion. It's a very handy thing to feel, but uh, it's not based on any reality, and therefore I kind of have to question how sincere these wounded uh, protests really are. And then then you come up with the the Foxmans and the Peretzes who seem to feel that uh, uh, Muslims don't have the right to the same sensitivity. I mean, Peretz saying that the the Second Amendment or the First Amendment uh, doesn't apply to Muslims and Foxman saying that, yeah, uh, the anti-Muslim feelings around ground zero, uh, we should allow the victims to have their prejudices. This is also, you know, if, if, if you were to switch that around and say that about the Jews, they'd be horrified, right? They'd be, you know, they'd be all over the place. Well, yeah, and not to mention the fact that if, if you look at the number of people who are uh, killed and injured before because they're Muslim yeah. in, in, in the West, uh, you'll get a much higher figure. Not to mention uh, the, the, all the Sikhs who the dumbass bigots killed because uh, they think they're Muslims. Yeah, a lot of the, uh, yeah, they killed some of them at, right after Oklahoma, you know, when, when, yeah. the, when the building was blown. Yeah, he's got yeah. a turban, he's, he's a Muslim, kill him. Yeah, there's, there's yeah, a lot of that. Him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, Foxman, he's, he's yesterday's guy. Parrots, uh, he's a guy with uh, too much money that enables him to shoot off his mouth. I mean, if, if you look at people who are taking seriously today, like uh, George Soros, for example, they're not in this bag. Uh, You know, that they have founded their own well-endowed lobby group called J Street, uh, which uh, agitates for a more moderate position in Israel and the part of the U.S. 
I think that those of us who grew up preoccupied with anti-Semitism need to be sensitive to the changes that are occurring and to, I would say, the battles that have already been won on that front. Not, of course, we're in no way talking about desensitizing ourselves to real anti-Semitism as we are to desensitizing ourselves to any form of racism, right? It's just that we have to we have to put all of it within perspective. And as you've said in some of your other writings, you know, in a sense, show me the hamburger. Where's the real carnage going down? Where are people really being deprived of life, liberty, and, and, and property, right? Well, I mean, here's the uh, the bitter comedy of it. Uh, where anti-Semitism is most real and most dangerous, uh, the the Foxmans and, and Israel itself, they don't particularly give a shit. You know, I mean, you have Italy, which is literally being taken over by fascists. You, you'd think that might be something Jews would remember as a danger. They don't care. Why? Oh, Berlusconi likes Israel. Um, the, the Ukraine, dangerous place. Poland, a dangerous place. Well, you don't hear much about that. You hear much more about, you know, oh, you know, this guy in London said something naughty. Uh, the, 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 the concern about anti-Semitism by the professional uh, so-called Jewish advocates has got no connection with reality, and it's they who are not sensitive to the real dangers. If they were sensitive to the real dangers, they would realize the biggest danger is Israel doing outrageous things and then having the goal to claim this is in the name of the Jewish people. Well, thank you, Michael. Michael Newman's been with us again and will be with us um, in the future up here on Radio Free Oz. Thanks for spending the time, and we'll, we'll be talking with you soon, okay? Thanks very much. As if the U.S. wasn't facing enough problems in Afghanistan, a former employee of a government contractor that supplies interpreters to the U.S. Army said in an ABC News report that more than one quarter of the translators working in the country had failed language proficiency exams, but they were sent into the battlefield anyway. Huh? What did you say in Pashtun? Really? I determined that someone, and I, I don't know who at that time, was changing the grades from blanks or zeros to passing grades, Paul Funk, a former employee at the Ohio-based Mission Essential Personnel, told ABC. Many who failed were marked as being passed. Funk also alleged that Mission Essential Personnel ignored cheating on language exams that were taken over the phone. The company holds contracts worth up to $1.4 billion of my dollars. U.S. Army officials confirmed they were investigating the company. They said this to ABC News. Mission Essential Personnel strongly objected to the ABC story in a statement posted recently. The company said that Funk resigned due to financial improprieties in his office and said they would not litigate the issue in the media, i.e., they are busted. With willful disregard, ABC chose to ignore the facts, doing a grave disservice to the public and to many good people in the field, the company said. Many, not all, a quarter of them, are complete deadbeats, and we cheated, but you're doing a disservice to all the rest of them who vaguely got through. Earlier this year, the company was given a one-year no-bid $679 million extension of its current contract, Wired reported. As Wired pointed out, the company had previously been accused of abandoning wounded employees and allegedly hired out-of-state employees, even some in their 60s and 70s. But if you think you'd make the cut, the company is hiring. And a listing posted this week says interpreters are paid $210,000 a year. How do you say incorrectly in Pashtun, where do I line up for this job? The pyramid is opening! Which one? The one with the ever-widening hole in it! I'm saved! I'm going in! No! Don't do that, son! It's dark and dirty in there! Oh, but, Mom! It's full of bees and spiders! You might poke your eye out! Maybe your father comes home! I'm going in, Mom! There's a vacancy! This one out of the Huff and Puff. Pennsylvania's Democratic governor and conservative Morning Joe host Joe Scarborough agree. America cannot afford to spend $2 billion per week in Afghanistan while millions of its citizens languish without a job. Duh. 
During a discussion about the nation's high unemployment rate, Governor Ed Rendell proposed a massive federal investment in infrastructure to spur job growth and address the country's flagging transportation, energy, and water systems. Scarborough, with an eye on the bottom line, said, Over the next week, we'll spend over $2 billion in Afghanistan. What if we invested that in our economy? $2 billion a week on a war without end. Rendell took Scarborough's figure and expanded it, imagining what the U.S. could do at home with the money spent on the war in Afghanistan. For $2 billion a week, that's $100 billion a year, you could finance a federal capital budget where you're spending $1.1 trillion fixing up our infrastructure. That's the debt service on $1.1 trillion of work. That would keep American manufacturing humming for the next four years. Scarborough summarized his concerns about Afghanistan. They're mine too, by the way. When we are debt-ridden, when our economy is collapsing, when our troops are spread out across the globe, how do we continue fighting a war without an endgame, he asked. Yeah, well, unfortunately, we the people are the endgame. When the game is over, it's end of everything. Elizabeth Drew is a top-of-the-line journalist and first-rate author, and she is analyzing Congress and trying to get through all of the miasma of lies and propaganda about what's been going down with the boys in D.C. This is out of Politico. It's time to retire the overused and inaccurate words dysfunctional and paralysis that have appeared in a recent spate of articles and commentary propagating the fashionable view that the current Congress has gotten little or even nothing done. In fact, this has been one of the most productive Congresses in decades. Indeed, it's hard for Congress to get respect. The oddballs and loudmouths get disproportionate attention, and there are more of them as the parties and their most intense followers have moved further to the extremes and with the advent of cable television with more time to fill. Thoughtful members of Congress, and there are many of them, don't make for good television, and neither does a complicated argument. Soundbites don't last more than 10 or 15 seconds. The convoluted and antique practices of the Hill also do little to increase legislative credibility. There have long been scoundrels, sexual adventurers, and petty crooks on Capitol Hill, the politicians yielding to the temptations that power offers. But for all the attention they get, they represent a tiny percentage of the 535 members of Congress. Inevitably, however, many people believe that Congress is a bunch of crooks. And by the way, the devaluing of Congress has been a right-wing theme for 40 years. The idea is alienate people from the government, make them participate less and less, and the few can take and keep control. A complete list of Congress's accomplishments so far would require more space than available, but includes the following. The health care reform bill, a $787 billion stimulus bill that has been widely criticized as too small but was all that could be achieved at the time and has by any measure had a positive effect on the economy, and continuation of the troubled assist relief program, a bank bailout bill begun under President George W. Bush. Congress also passed a financial regulation bill under the leadership of true liberals Barney Frank and Chris Dodd, that suited a wide array of reformers, if not all of them, the Lilly Ledbetter bill that provided equal pay for women, substantial expansion of the Children's Health Insurance Plan, which Bush had twice vetoed, consumer protection against several deceptive practices by credit card companies, two important education reforms, one encouraging schools to compete to meet higher standards than those in Bush's No Child Left Behind, and the other transforming student loan programs from banks to the federal government to charge students less and cover more of them. And after a decade-long fight, giving the U.S. government broad regulatory power for the first time over cigarettes and other tobacco products. What's more, after a long struggle involving two or three filibusters, unemployment compensation benefits, which would seem to be unexceptionable, were finally extended. Also, at the last minute, Congress agreed to a $26 billion second stimulus bill to prevent states from laying off teachers, firefighters, and police. Obama had set a goal of about $50 billion, but Republicans had dug in as Democrats began to freak at being labeled spenders. One way Democrats met Republicans' insistence that the bill be paid for was by cutting funds for food stamps. Some Democrats suspected that Republicans didn't want the economy to approve before the midterms. It's true. They want as much misery as possible. And if that misery, if that miasma 
makes you feel so bad that you can't get up and do anything to change. If you don't go to the polls on November, you deserve everything I get. And I'm going to blame you for it. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, the chinless wonder, commented recently to the New York Times, I am amused with their Democratic comments about obstructionism. I wish we had been able to obstruct more. Referring to the stimulus, health care, and financial regulation, McConnell said, these were all major pieces of legislation, and if I had had enough votes to stop them, I would have. But probably McConnell's major achievement was to chew up time through various legislative maneuvers. That's why we send people to Congress and pay them big bills, is so they can chew up time, of which the filibuster was only one to prevent other legislation from ever coming up. What's changed is that Republicans have used the filibuster as a means to an ambitious partisan goal more than ever before. Till recently, filibusters were carried out by a faction such as Southerners against civil rights or a couple of liberal senators opposing natural gas deregulation supported by a Democratic president. But according to Senate historian Donald Ritchie, the filibuster was rarely used as a unified partisan instrument until recently. It's the outside forces that changed, he said. By that he meant the country's increasing polarization which rebounds on Congress, which doesn't, can't act in a vacuum. The result of all the misinformation about Congress floating about is that much of the public has become all the more disillusioned with our political system. We don't need that now, as a cynical and alarmingly ill-informed electorate is about to cast ballots for a new Congress. It is a real crisis. It is a real emergency. And I fear for us.
There's a kind of poem, actually a kind of doggerel, called an abecedary. Uh, it's the A to Z format. They used to, like, uh, embroider it into samplers in another distant time. But I like it as a format for dealing with what's going down. And here is my most recent abecedary. And it's called From the A's to the Z's. A's for Alaska, where wingnuts abound. B is for Bilderberg, deep underground. C is for coal, dirty fuel, dirty grave. D is the Dems with a Congress to save. E's the electorate, angry and scared. F is the fascist, well-paid and prepared. G is the GMO food on the shelf. H is the harm it can do to yourself. I is for Islam, but which one, by God? Is J for their justice or endless jihad? K is for Karzai and his dope-dealing bro. L is how long he will last when we go. M is for Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's fist, which he shakes when he says that his nukes don't exist. O is for Obama. I'm so glad he's there. P is the people who think that he's Saladin's heir. Q is Al-Qaeda, Osama's vile thugs. R is Rydia that pays for their weapons and rugs. S is the stimulus, vision, and plan. T is the tea party, duped to a man. U is unmanned drones flown from far, far away. V is the innocent victims they slay. W is the prick who put us in this hole. X is the factor we'll never control. Y is the question. Why must our country begin this ground zero sum game that no one can win? If we rise above gender, wealth, power, and age, put an end to this flag-waving, book-burning rage, and just tend the garden, play our parts, take our ease, we can rebuild the future from the A's to the Z's. Yes, I have edited this dismal list out of the Huffington Post. It's the 10 job areas in America that are shedding jobs and will probably never return to their original, excuse the expression, robustness. Number one, construction. Over the course of the summer, government statistics have shown sharp drops in the construction of new homes and apartments. Building permits are down. Most large housing markets have more than 12 months of unsold inventory on hand. That's more than twice the regular rate. There is also a shadow inventory of unsold homes, those that have gone into foreclosure but have not been put on the market by banks. Foreclosures and defaults are expected to rise another three to three and a half million this year. It's a very depressed market. Number two, automotive manufacturing. No surprise. General Motors has cut over 100,000 people since the beginning of the recession in 2007. Ford has cut over 20,000 and Chrysler 15,000. That doesn't include foreign car companies with workers in the U.S. By some estimates, every car company worker layoff leads to three more layoffs in related industries that supply the car and light truck manufacturing business. That includes hundreds of car dealerships that have been closed in the last two years. Yeah, you drive down five or any of the major highways, that, and you see all of these closed car dealerships. Oh, my. Realtors. The National Association of Realtors reports there were uh, almost uh, 1.4 million realtors in October of 2006. By the end of 2007, it was 1.2 million. The number is below 1.1 today and has continued on a downward trend. Home prices have dropped so far and so few homes have sold that the ability to make money in the business disappears by the day. Next, pharmaceuticals. I got to take a pill, really, to read this report. This industry has bled workers for three years, and that trend is likely to continue. The largest companies in the sector, such as Pfizer and Merck, have a number of blockbuster drugs that have lost their patent protection in the last decade. Oh, just too bad. Most companies in the industry admit they can't replace the drugs that go off patent fast enough to keep their revenue high, their extraordinary revenue. Big drug companies are merging to save costs, and most of those costs are people. Pfizer has cut 30,000 since the start of the recession, Merck 25,000, and these companies and their peers expect there will be more downsizing, more pinks on the pavement. 
Newspapers. The layoffs in newspapers began in the 1980s as presses became more automated and tens of thousands of pressmen lost their jobs. But more recently, the changing habits of news consumption have increased internet readers and hurt print, which has caused more job losses in press rooms. One recent study claims that the newspaper industry employees' base fell from 767,000 jobs in 98 to 619,000 jobs in 2008. That's a huge drop. The U.S. Department of Labor forecast another 120,000 newspaper layoffs over the next 10 years. And of course, we have heard that um, the New York Times says it will stop newspaper publication, hard paper publication, by 2015. Airplane employees. The number of pilots, stewards, and ground crew workers is shrinking as consolidation and the recession have hurt the industry badly. Mergers in the last two years between Delta and Northwest and United uh, and, and Continental have decreased the number of large carriers in the U.S. by half. The Bureau of Transportation Statistics reported the number of airline employees in the U.S. has fallen 25% since 2001. Next on the chopping block, big telecom. AT&T, Sprint, Nextel, and Verizon have passed their peak employment levels. Employment in the sector will not recover and could shrink for two reasons. One, the landline business is falling rapidly as home phones uh, switch over to, um, you know, voice over the internet, and two, because the increased adoption of cell phones. The market is being saturated. Sprint made substantial cuts as it posted three years of losses, the most recent 2,500 people in November of last year. In 2008, AT&T said it would lay off 12,000. Verizon recently said it would fire 13,000 from its landline business. And its CFO said the downsizing is not over. He may not even be around next year to tell us. He may get the chop. Ha, ha, ha. State and local government jobs. This is really serious because this is real center of what we call the middle and lower middle class. These are jobs. These are cradle to grave. The level of unemployment in this sector continues to rise. Budget imbalances in a number of states have already caused mass layoffs as tax receipts have dropped sharply. 22 states furloughed employees and 25 laid-off workers during fiscal 2009-2010. California slashed its workforce which has been reduced by tens of thousands. 46 states face budget shortfalls, big ones, that'll total $112 billion for the fiscal year ending next year. Municipalities face similar difficulties as property tax plummets. Yeah, it's a bad bag. There's just no doubt about it. Okay, installation, maintenance, and repair. Solid blue-collar world. Where's it gone? This set of industries related to housing and commercial construction and maintenance will also not generate new jobs. These industries will be more crowded as people with training and related work leave the armed forces with a drawdown in troops in Iraq, which will put downward pressure on wages. Of course, if you come home from Iraq or AFPAC or wherever or the moon with these skills and there's no work, there's only one place to return to. Afghan gladiator goes back for another tour. And finally, bank tellers. Bank tellers, I've noticed in the last 10 years, they've grown younger and younger and less and less prepared. Long before the recession, personal banking was on the way to becoming automated. This technologically driven shift has been and will continue to be the chief cause of bank teller layoffs. According to the FDIC, since 2008, at the beginning of the recession, there have been 283 banks shuttered. And as of August 20th of this year, state and federal negotiators had closed another 118 banks, making it on pace to exceed the 140 closed in 2009. The single largest employee group at bank branches are bank tellers, and they will share, in fact, take the brunt of this continued cost cutting. So... What does that leave? Let me think about it. I mean, you could go grow your own. That's one way. But hey, uh, we talked to the pot growers out in the um, Emerald Triangle, and now that it's getting legalized, wholesale prices are down 50%. Well, what's a poor man to do? David, this is a story about a sitting Ohio um, senator uh, who decided to buck the trends and do the right thing. And it reminds me of a story which I'll I'll. I'll you know, buttonhole this with about a sitting Ohio senator who did the right thing for me. Retiring Republican Senator George Voinovich of Ohio said he plans to help push a package of small business incentives through the Senate next week, a move that will give President Obama and congressional Democrats a key victory on the economy in the final weeks before the November midterm elections. So a Republican has been part of all of this no, 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 right? Sure. He's a conservative Republican, but he's not an idiot. In an interview, 
Voinovich said he could no longer support Republican efforts to delay the measure in hopes of winning the right to offer additional amendments. Most of the proposed GOP amendments didn't have anything to do with the bill anyway, Voinovich said, and amounted merely to partisan messaging. We don't have time for messaging, Voinovich said. We don't have time anymore. The country is really hurting. Wow. And he's retiring. Mm. Voinovich said he told Majority Leader Harry Reid that if a single amendment to reduce paperwork for business owners is considered on the floor, he will add his vote to those of the 59 senators who caucus with the Democrats. That would give the majority party the 60 votes needed to overcome a possible GOP filibuster and approve Mm. the package when Congress returns to Washington next week. With Voinovich's help, a top aide to Reid said Senate leaders expect to approve the package by the end of next week and then go to the House for final passage. The small business bill is a priority for Obama, who has called repeatedly on Senate Republicans to drop their blockade of the measure. He mentioned it again during a speech Wednesday in Cleveland, arguing that delaying the bill's passage is lending uh, is leading small business owners to put off hiring. This is just, I thought the Republican Party was all supposed to be about small business. Apparently, it's all about adding amendments. Yeah, and see, in Ohio, is the, what? The birthplace of presidents is full of presidents who had to do with small business. They really did. The package of tax breaks and other incentives includes a new loan fund that would encourage community banks to provide up to $30, million, $30 billion to small businesses, improving access to credit, a problem hurting business owners in Ohio, Voinovich said. He cited the case of a constituent who had, was turned down for a loan by 42 banks. Oh, my God! I happen to believe these small business people can't get money to save their souls, he said. Well, I think George Voinovich has just saved his soul. Thank you, George. That is really a brave thing to do in this time of no, no, no. And not only no, all the polls are saying and the pundits are saying, you're going to be in the majority. You know, you guys are going to be able to say no forever and ruin everything the not me has done. And he turns around and says, the the country is hurting. Enough of this political messaging. Okay, my story about the other sitting Ohio senator that did things right. Uh, I was in the Army. I was in the Army Reserves. I was in Fort Sam Houston in the second, third months of my six months, you know, a reserve duty. And I got accepted by the Ford Foundation to represent America at this thing called the Literary Colloquium in Berlin. And it was to start in late May. And I was uh, scheduled to get out of the Army in late June. So I went to my company commander. I'm just a grunt. I'm an E1. I go, sir, I said, I've been accepted to the Ford Foundation Literary Colloquium in Berlin, and I would like to get out of the Army a month early. And this captain looks at me and says, hero, you don't have a snowball's chance in hell of getting out of this man's army. I thought to myself, hmm, I have these things, these thoughts often come. Yeah. Well, we'll see about that. So I call my dad, uh, who was a... Uh, Longtime journalist in Cleveland and was very friendly with a political operative uh, named Howard Metzenbaum, who would himself go on to become a senator, right, who was the political aide to uh, Stephen Young, who had taken over the position of Ohio senator from Frank Lauschi, who had died. So he was only there for a couple of years and had told everyone, I'm not running when this is over. Mm. This is temporary. So it made him a legitimate maverick if he wished to be. So my dad calls Metzenbaum. Metzenbaum calls Stephen Young, right? Two days later, you know, all of a sudden at Fort Sam Houston, off the teletype comes, release Peter Bergman immediately from the active duty of the United States Army, signed Lyndon Baines Johnson, (laughs) Commander-in-Chief. Now, normally, to get out of the Army, to get out of the reserves the last day to take you, whatever they call it, deploy you, whatever, or de-deploy you, it takes two days, standing in line, getting the stuff taken off, they check it off and off and off and on. They came and grabbed me. And literally, they were pulling stuff off of me and, 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 and packing my suitcases for me. I swear to you, they hit me around 9 o'clock in the morning, and I was on a bus at like noon and on a plane at 2. How long after you had called your dad? Two days. Two days. Two days. Two days. Two and, you know, days. And, and they, I just was gone. I had this big bag of duffel bag of stuff they all shoved together and told me to get the hell out. Because they didn't want anything to do with me. So senators in Ohio can be known to do the right thing. Thank you, senators. Well, this has been a real interesting week, kicking off with those two interviews with uh, Michael Newman, 
see how people respond to that. You know, it's uh, talking about sensitive issues gets gets everybody's hackles up. So we'll just have to take a look. Want to remind you all to come up to the website. It's happening, by the way, David. You know, we we had about oh ten percent of our downloaders were coming up. It's now up to about well. It, almost 15% now are coming up. Hey, where we're, yeah. As soon as I get my blog on, who yeah. can resist? Oh, that's it? right. Get up there. Yeah, your blog, in fact, because of time shift, your blog is probably already up there, Davey. So <laughs> well, I haven't written it yet. You, well, there you go. Am I living go. in the future? Golly. Hey, oh, <laughs> golly. You know, I never, I never wrote for the New York Times, and they're stopping. Well, who knows? It's, it's all very confusing. Yeah. Well, let's 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 get real. Let's let's ground ourselves with a little tang. Well, you know, we that's that's what makes this show uh, different from other journalistic program. And why is what is that, David? Because nobody out there reads poetry. That's true. There's no poetry in the newspaper, whether it's on plastic or on paper. There's no poetry on the on the the Today Show, the Tonight Show, the Tomorrow Show, or the on Daily NPR, Show. On nobody, on the Huffington Post, which is this great blog. There's no poetry. No poetry. It's just, you know, there's just what there is, but ain't no poetry. Well, I'm going to bring you some tofu. Here's the last of these five poems for autumn, on autumn fields. I wanted my picture to hang in the Hall of Fame, the Unicorn Gallery. Now in old age, I waddle with the ducks and snowy herons. In autumn, the big rivers rise suddenly. At night, I hear the waters roaring in the deserted gorges. Stones pile up to block the paths. The sail that might have carried me back turns into a cloud. And my children grow up speaking a barbarous tongue, as if they were only fit for careers in the army. Wow, only fit for careers in the army. We're an army of sorts here, the Oz team that brings this all together, and we will continue to struggle for you. Day by day, four fresh shows a week, a best of the best. I'm blogging, David's blogging, and there's more coming, by the way. There's some real interesting new stuff coming. Wait until we introduce you to uh, The Road to Oz, and we're going to be doing some video uh, webcasting real soon. So stay with Oz, because we're going to stay with you.